I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, writer Philip Hall on his book The Sea Inside, and then journalist Deborah Orr on Kate Bush's debut album The Kick Inside. Philip Hall is the author of seven works of non-fiction, including an acclaimed biography of Noel Coward and Leviathan, or The Whale, which won the 2009 BBC Samuel Johnson Prize for non-fiction. An experienced broadcaster, he wrote and presented the BBC Arena film The Hunt for Moby Dick and directed three films for BBC's Whale Night. He is a visiting fellow at Southampton University and Leverholm Artist-in-Residence at the Marine Institute at Plymouth University, which awarded him an honorary doctorate in 2011. He is also the co-curator of the Moby Dick Big Read. His latest book, The Sea Inside, was published by Forty State in June 2013. So, Philip, welcome to Little Atoms. Lovely to be here. The Sea Inside, it's there's a lot of whales in it, but it's a um, it's very different beast from your previous book, Leviathan. In some ways, it's more digressive. It covers a, a wider waterfront, but there's sort of a common theme that goes through it as well. So so let's talk about that first of all. So what's the central idea that's, I guess, implicit in that title? It's, I mean, I suppose it's a reaction to the fact that I've spent now 12, 13 years working with the subject of the sea. And that sort of has been a kind of fear and fascination for me all my life. I was born and brought up in a port city in Southampton where I, I live now and where I'm speaking from. And I have, you know, like many people have a, a, a conflicted relationship to see in that it's a powerful magnetic presence in all our lives. And, you know, you can't ignore the sea. It's 40% of the oxygen that we breathe comes from the sea. You know, the 90% of the food and things we eat and consume and trade in are brought to us by sea. And yet modern life allows us to turn to backs on it to, you know, even, I mean, I'm sure you're talking from Westcliff. I'm talking from Southampton, you know. It's funny how places like that can still almost ignore the reason for them being there. You know, the reason for both our places that we're talking from uh, is the water. Britain is an island nation. So I found all that sort of, all those paradoxes and conflicts. And when I was writing Leviathan, very much bound up in the shape and the weight of the whale. And partly because that book was very much fired and powered by my discovery of of whales in the wild. And also my discovery of New England as a place. And of course, of Moby Dick, uh, as you said in your introduction, and and Melville as a writer. And I think actually Melville is is still a presence in the new book. Very much so, yeah. Yes, he is, yeah. Uh, And now I, I, I can't get rid of him. He's partly because I suppose... Melville was only recently discovered. I mean, he was, um, Moby Dick was a posthumously successful as a book and was only really discovered, in inverted commas, in the 1920s by modernist writers like Auden and Forster and D.H. Lawrence and Virginia Woolf. So there's that sense of the sort of still impact of Melville, I think, as a, as a very interesting character. But also the fact that the way Moby Dick is written, this incredibly digressive 
meandering book which somehow seems to wander off in extraordinary directions and then sort of magically comes back to itself again, to its theme. I suppose that's really what I was trying to do with the sea inside. Leviathan was a kind of really visceral reaction to the shock of the whale, the shock of me actually first seeing whales in the wild, a natural physical shock of that, and that was a real... But the sea inside is a more kind of considered approach and an interrogation of that, really, which then wanders into other aspects of the natural world. And overall, and very much arching the theme of it is the meeting of natural history and human history and the sense of migration and home. And indeed, you start from home. So the book follows the course of a series of separate but interlinked essays starting in Southampton. Actually, you end up back at home as well at the end of the book. But through the course of the essays, you get further and further away, ended up right on the other side of the world towards the end. And we'll we'll gradually move through the book as we do that. But we'll start from home. And I should say as well that what we'll do is, as you go through the various places in the book, you tell us about the place, but also about the animals and birds, and of course, again, the whales, and the series of really interesting people that you you introduce along the way. So we'll dip in and out of we'll dip in and out of the various chapters as we go along. But I think we'll sort of follow a course from Southampton over to New Zealand across the course of the uh, of the story. Now, as I said, the first chapter is called The Suburban Sea and it starts off in your in your hometown of Southampton. It begins with a, a description of what you do every day, which is going out and swimming in Southampton water in, in all weathers. So tell us about why do you do that? Why does that does that give you some, I don't know, a connection to the sea? Well, it's obviously a physical connection because I immerse myself in yeah. it and, and I, <laughs> in that other environment, that other temperature, that other medium, it's a very totally in-your-face thing. It's the kind of maddest thing you can do at four o'clock in the morning in January on a snowy beach <laughs> in an industrial seaway. I mean, this isn't pretty, this place. Southampton's a working port it's one of the busiest container ports there's constant traffic when i'm out there it, and i swim obviously when the high tide falls is is the whole idea uh, and if that falls at four o'clock in the morning that's when i swim and sometimes you have these ghostly liners drifting down sort of all lit up but silent and that's a, that's a very strange thing about this waterway and the sea in general is that sense of silence incredible power you know this week we've had intensely high tides i don't really have had them down your way but i've had the sea wall where i usually swim from has been completely brimming over with water i mean it's it's been an, a really remarkably high tide and what you're really reminded of even here on this place which is just really the beach is just kind of interface with between suburbia and sea is you know, the unconquerable power of that water and the allure of it, but also the mortality of it. You know, the idea, I mean, even, you know, last week I was walking along the south bank of the Thames down by London Bridge. I was walking by my young niece and nephew and I was thinking, we got quite close to one of the stairs going down to the, the Thames. And it was, again, it was a really high tide and the tide was going out and there's these swirling sort of cappuccino waters heading out down down your way, really. And, uh, and I just thought, you know, one slip, you're in there and that's you gone. The tide was going so far, it was going out so fast, you just, no one could save you. And, you know, no matter, I'm a strong swimmer, I wouldn't have survived, you know. I would just have been carried out, you know. I'd have been lucky if I could grab onto some sort of stanch or something, but that would have been valid. And I just thought, you know, how extraordinary that there is something which we are living next to, upon which we depend, yet can take our life so quickly, so easily, so banally in a way, you know, that you could be just walking along the, the edge of something at one minute and then one step... And that's the end of you. And that's kind of what I think every time I go in the water. So for me, it's a challenge. It's about my mortality, I suppose, in a way. But I mean, it's also (laughs) challenging my own fear, the fact that I never learned to swim until I was 25 years old. I mean, it was strange. Growing up in a port city right next to the sea, I I was so scared of the water. You know, I uh, I, I was just too scared to learn to swim. Uh, It was only actually when I was living in Hackney in the 1980s, I actually managed to get myself to a swimming bath and actually force myself into the water and force myself to see that the water can be, well, I'd like to say a friend, but the water, you know, it's not a friend. It's, it's a neutral, uncaring element that can dispose with you at will. It can give and mm-hmm. take at its own pleasure, as it were. 
So all these things are such a wonderful, <laughs> for the banality, banality of ordinary life, the kind of ordinary day-to-day life that you and I, the, probably everyone else listening to this, lives, which is mostly in front of a computer screen. I mean, generally, that's what most <laughs> people do nowadays. It's just so incredible that, you know, I can cycle 20 minutes from my little suburban house in suburban Southampton and be in a place where I am at eye level with crested grebes and common seals and container ships, feeling, you know, very different. The head is cleared. I was going to raise the uh, container ships only a couple of weeks ago. I had uh, Rose George on the show talking about her book about shipping. And it was fascinating then subsequently reading your book where you're actually in the water with these huge boats. But even more so, as you've just mentioned, there's an encounter where you come face to face with a seal. Tell us about that encounter. It was October a couple of years back. I was swimming and the water was still warm at that point. Uh, It's decidedly colder now, I can tell you. I, I was just swimming it this morning. But... Um, I was quite far out, I was probably about 100 feet out from shore, and I heard this great whoosh, and I thought, Jesus, that sounds like a whale. And um, I turned round, and probably two yards away from me, maybe less, was this big, it was a grey seal actually, looking at me as surprised as I was. We were actually sort of stunned at seeing one another in the water there. And I had these great big sort of black Labrador eyes. But the thing about grey seals, without any seal, actually, is is that um, if they decide to kind of play with you and either bite or scratch you, you know, maybe not out of malice, or or that's an anthropomorphic term, but, you know, they accidentally scratch you, there's a kind of condition you can get, which the common name of it is seal finger, and you end up getting infected fingers and they drop off. I I know scientists that this has happened to. So I thought, uh uh-oh, you know... Don't want to get too close to this animal. Also, uh, great seals can get to be 800 pounds in weight, so much more than four times heavier than me. So I started, I swam, turned on my back and started kicking out with my feet, thinking, you know, to keep it at its distance, you know, make some sort of uh, uh, commotion in between us. It disappeared. I started swimming back to the shore and blow me. <laughs> the animal swam under me, followed me right back to shore. And I just leapt out onto the seawall and I'm standing there and I don't, usually wear anything when I'm swimming. So I'm standing there naked, and this bloody great seal looking up at me, thinking, well, what are you doing up there? <laughs> and it was in the shallows. I mean, it was almost it was out of its depth. Completely bizarre encounter. I have seen seals there before, but um, it was the incongruity of, of the encounter that really, really <laughs> shook me, actually. I, I was shaken by it, uh, because I'm so used to doing that. You know, I've never expected anything to pop up beside me, you know. I'm Jay Courtney Sullivan. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. In the book, you travel very, very far from home, but in the second chapter of this book you take quite a short trip just across the Solent for a wander around the Isle of Wight mm. and um, you make a visit to the Tennyson Monument or Memorial and while there this leads to a, a digression into a discussion on ravens which are a bird I absolutely love as well so I wanted to spend some time talking about well, what you find so remarkable about them. Well you know Neil I mean if you've if someone describes a raven to you, you think, oh, yeah, it's a big crow, and we know crows. Yeah. A raven, as you know, is a very different creature. I mean, apart from anything, it's much bigger. And it's in view. I mean, you don't even need to be told anything. You don't need to know your Edgar Allan Poe or, or anything, really, to know that this is a deeply mythological animal, which is as freighted with myth and legend as, you know, as the whale is, in a way. And for me, the actual, as I started to investigate, ravens as animals and look at some of the science being done on them it's and you know i mean they are pretty much it's agreed they are uh, the most intelligent birds so the corvids generally so mm-hmm. jackdaws rooks all the corvid group crows are pretty intelligent ravens i think are very intelligent in fact there's a very interesting laboratory experiment going on in cambridge now where scientists actually openly talk about corvids as feathered apes but notwithstanding that and that is very interesting it's it's extraordinary, that sort of inky blackness of these creatures and that glittering eye, which seems to be intelligent. And the way that they've occupied legend from the Roman legend about uh, don't chase ravens away if they're resting in your house because that will spell disaster, which is probably where the, the story about the Tower of London ravens came from. And I don't know if you saw recently there's a story that a fox actually has eaten two of the ravens at the tower. <laughs> yeah. 
It still seems to be standing. That's right. And apparently, if, it, if you get down to just uh, you, you need six ravens at the tower. Apparently, Charles II decreed if you if you have any less than than, than six ravens, then the kingdom is in is in peril. But then, you know, I love the, the Viking stories about ravens because, I mean, people know that the Norse used ravens as uh, navigational aids on the longships. They would take a bird in a cage and release it into the air. And because a raven would home and immediately fly in direction of land, it would be a, a navigational aid for them. But more in a literary way, the, the raven was one of the poetic beasts of battle in Anglo-Saxon poetry and they were um, portrayed on uh, Norse or Viking banners carried by Viking armies as a kind of presentiment of what's going to happen to their enemies you know will end up as carrion or our ravens and Olin had two ravens sitting perching on one side of his shoulders Hugin and Mugen were thought and desire apparently these two birds and every day they would fly off from Olin's shoulders around the world gathering intelligence to kind of give him the kind of omniscience power. And then you go through Christian myth, the raven appears. The raven's the first bird to leave the ark, uh, again, as a kind of navigational thing. And it's a raven that sustains some of the desert monks, these strange first saints, the recluses who live in the desert and um, sustained by ravens bringing bread every day to them. But then you come up to, you know, obviously Edgar Allan Poe, and then more recently uh, Hitchcock, you know, the raven that's lurking over Anthony Perkins' uh, shoulder mm-hmm. when uh, at the Bates Motel. And this kind of motif that runs through and kind of changes shape, it's, it's a great shape-shifter, the raven. I mean, in Haida cult, the Haida Northwest American Indian peoples, the raven is the trickster who's the begetter of the world. He inseminates an oyster shell, which opens up and there's these mewling mannequins in it and the raven has unleashed humanity on the world and he knows it's a kind of equivocal gift to the world. Um, so yeah, there's all these things and I think, you know, I'd love to keep a raven, I just know how, how politically correct that is, but apparently ravens can speak almost better than, than parrots. I don't know, have you ever heard a raven speak? I don't know. Only on YouTube videos, but yeah. Okay, indeed, yeah, I must check that out. Be, yeah, they'd certainly be taught to talk. Yeah. Okay, well, I just want to finish off this section then, talking about uh, one of the, the remarkable characters that you mentioned. You talked about the uh, the ravens, the story of the ravens through Christian mythology. And mm. after a discussion of some of those desert hermits, you get to the, the Northumbrian monk Cuthbert, yeah. who's a remarkable character and something is, is say, a British St. Francis figure, isn't yeah. he? Well, Cuthbert, he's just one of those people I'd sort of been always vaguely aware, having been brought up as a Catholic and vaguely aware of him as being a, a great sort of you know, northern saint. But he turns out to have these wonderfully sort of strange connections with nature. Uh, they, they mostly we know these stories through Bede's account of Cuthbert, so obviously they're taken in a sort of hagiographical sense. But mm-hmm. it's a great story of Cuthbert going to evangelize amongst the Picts and he's with his brethren, two or three brethren, fellow monks, and they get stranded on a beach, some remote Scottish beach. And they're starving. They're, um, they're, they're sh- they can't get away. And then they're, they're three days they're starving. And suddenly on the beach appears slices of dolphin flesh. <laughs> so you kind of imagine this kind of a cetacean sushi appearing, which um, then sustain them. And then uh, we certainly know that Cuthbert would meditate in the water. And this is something which I really think about, actually, because where I swim is in the shadow of an old Cistercian Abbey um, uh, at Netley in Southampton. And apparently this is quite common amongst the sort of Dark Age saints, that they would go and meditate in the water because it would keep them awake and they would stay there all night. And apparently Cuthbert would stay naked all night in the water up to his neck, meditating probably on his own mortality. And when he came back out, a pair of otters would appear to dry his feet with their fur. I'd really love a pair of otters sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, Cuthbert then ends up as this wonderful recluse and, and, and a lot of the sea inside is about islands and the sense of reclusion and sometimes hermit-like people. And, and Cuthbert lives on one of the Farne Islands. He's left Lindisfarne at this point, and he wants to live in such seclusion that not only is he living this remote little island out in the North Sea, but he actually builds a circular stone enclosure without windows 
and excavates the ground below so that all he can see is the sky above. It's just an amazing notion. And then later on, he thatches it. And as he's thatching this building, a pair of ravens come down and start stealing the straw. So Cuthbert gives them a lecture. And the way B describes a wonderful sort of description of the way these ravens could have like skulk off with hunched shoulders, sort of guiltily. And they return the next day with a lump of lard <laughs> for Cuthbert, uh, the use of which is sort of unclear. But apparently Cuthbert then gives it to his brethren so that they can wax their boots with it. But there's, I suppose one of the great things about Cuthbert, uh, which I really love, is the fact that he, he's supposed to have instituted the first law of conservation in that he declared that all the eider ducks on the Farne Islands would be protected from being hunted or having their, their eggs taken. And apparently this is supposedly the first time any law was introduced for conservation of, of a wild animal. Um, yeah, I, it's just, I suppose, Cuthbert, because of, again, because he hovers between truth and reality. And I like that fact, and I like the way that he's kind of counterpointed in the book with T.H. White, who wrote, the once and future king, who of course is writing about myth, and who's kind of making a myth of himself in the 20th century, becomes a kind of a isolated person, training goshawks, relating to animals much more similarly than he does to human beings. And yet at the same time, his book is made into a musical Camelot, and he's got Julie Andrews coming to stay with him on the island of Alderney, where he's staying and singing songs from Camelot. It's a I love those kind of disjunctures and strange connections. Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and this week I'm talking to Philip Hoare about his book, The Sea Inside. So we're still at home at the moment, Philip. We're not going to we're not going to roam too far over the seas yet, because in the next chapter, which is called The Inland Sea, but it's basically about London. Mm. Again, another remarkable character is introduced for most of this chapter, actually, and this is John Hunter. Mm. Uh, a lot of listeners to the show, I think, will be familiar with the uh, the Hunterian Museum in Holborn. Mm. But tell us a little bit about who he was and, and what he did. Well, I mean, he was a preeminent surgeon, uh, medical practitioner, anatomist of the late 18th century, and uh, but also a man of great eccentricity. He had two establishments. He had a house in Leicester Square, where apparently visitors were greeted by a framed penis, preserved on the wall as one of the first exhibits that you saw as you walked in the house. But then he had his country house in Earl's Court, because Earl's Court was countryside at that time. And in the grounds of his house in Earl's Court, he had a menagerie. He had lions and tigers, a giraffe. He had eagles chained to a rock. And he had a special kind of cellar, which sounds pretty horrific where he did all his boiling down and that was not just animal remains that was human remains as well basis of many of the uh, exhibitions and exhibits at the Hunterian were, were prepared by Hunter but what I found really interesting about Hunter apart from all that was he was the first person to actually really scientifically examine and try and diagnose and describe whales mm-hmm. and he was certainly at a point when London, like many other ports in Britain, was a, a whaling port. London was a whaling port. Um, the Greenland Dock in Deptford was a place where whaling ships were come back from the Arctic, unloading great chunks of blubber onto the quayside now, where all those yuppie flats are. The uh, O2 Dome, the Millennium Dome, the O2 Arena, uh, was built on the site of a whaling station. These places were built out of sort of odiferous range of, of the genteel streets of the West End. And Hunter commissioned a young surgeon to go off to the Arctic to, to get some whale samples for him to examine. This young chap came back with very little. But remarkably, 
hunter's search for whales was actually sustained by the Thames itself, because especially in the second half of the 18th century, uh, and this is partly because people like Hunter were looking for them, there was a remarkable number of cetaceans coming up the Thames estuary and up right as far as the Thames. Uh, accounts of sailors setting out from the Greenwich Naval Hospital in pursuit of orcas swimming up the Thames up towards Westminster, harpooning orca. Seventeen sperm whales were stranded at the mouth of the Thames in the 1780s. So the funny thing was is that Hunter actually was having whales almost come to his doorstep. He buys these whales from various people who sort of land them or harpoon them. Because, of course, in those days, your first reaction on seeing a whale was to be, well, seeing any wild animal, generally, it seems to me, uh, was to kill it. And, of course, whales were valuable in that time. You know, blubber was valuable. And, uh, but Hunter acquired these specimens and published the first scientific paper, which was presented to the Royal Society by Joseph Banks, who, of course, was James Cook's naturalist and patron. And, of course, so what you see in the Hunterian, uh, if you go back to it, anyone, go back to it, you realize how many whale specimens there are. It's very interesting how focused Hunter was on whales. And to me, it's a kind of, you know, I mean, obviously, there's a parallel there to the 2006, the, the Thames whale, the London whale, the famous one that mm-hmm. came up with Thames. And, um, but also to the notion of the way London was more connected to the sea via the Thames. At that time, the, the Thames wasn't embanked. So it was, uh, there were shores, there were beaches, much more than there are now. The Strand was called the Strand because it was a strand, it was a beach originally. So you couldn't walk along the Thames, but there were steps going down, or, they, or these stairs called the Surrey Stairs and various names, uh, stairs going directly down. So the access to the water and the, the relationship to the water and what was coming up through the water up until the 20th century was much more direct and, and felt. Uh, it was part of trade, obviously, it was part of travel in a way which we really slightly turn our backs on now. In the same chapter, you get to hang out with a couple of modern-day John Hunters. You spend some time at London Zoo and, um, and witness the autopsy of a, of a porpoise that's been yeah. beached. So tell us a little bit about that experience. I mean, for someone who's so you know so taken by, by the cetaceans, it must yeah. be interesting to see one on a slab in that way. It was, and I, and I was... To be honest, really uh, trepidatious about doing it. You know, it's the Zoological Society of London, which is the scientific arm of London Zoo, and um, because of a royal ordinance first established in the 14th century, all cetaceans landing on British shores and English shores, rather, it doesn't pertain in Scotland, are the property of the Crown, and that right then devolves to the Natural History Museum, and they generally ask the London Zoological Society to dissect any animals that come up whose death isn't obvious, that it's obvious it hasn't been bashed by a boat or whatever. So I went there, and uh, this remarkable building, which is very nondescript from the outside in Regent's Park, descent of the cell, and you go through this kind of zone which is antiseptic you put on a big white boiler suit um rubber boots everything is sort of sterile you go through and then there's a big double gate like a garage to the door uh, open to one side of the room um, and that's open to the zoo beyond as well so there's just a little wall between there and the zoo so you're hearing all the animals noises you know the birds and the various animals and the hearing that and out there is a big sort of refrigerated cabinet and the, one of the assistants had this big chain, like the sort of chain you'd haul a car engine up from, swung from the uh, huge refrigerator, this great black plastic sack, you know, a bin liner, about six foot long, and hauled it into the room and then onto a steel dissecting table with a sink in the middle, you know, for the stuff of blood to run out of, unveils this harbour porpoise, which looks entirely peaceful, entirely unharmed. It might still be alive. It might have just been hoiked out of the water. And Rob Devil, who's the, uh, the scientist there who did the... Um, the actually, when it's, a, uh, when it's an animal, it's called a necropsy. And when he, he performed this dissection with the absolute deftness of a sushi chef slicing up some sashimi, started to cut open this animal. And, you know, your first instant sort of reaction is the gag. But then the extraordinary information that that gives you by opening up an animal is amazing and but what was more amazing was the fact that as rob opened up the creature the entire body cavity was filled with blood all the ribs on one side of the animal's body were snapped in half the liver had been torn in two and 
what transpired was that we were looking, this was CSI whale because the animal had been murdered by its own kind. It had been murdered by a bottlenose dolphin in Cardigan Bay. And there's two populations of resident bottlenose dolphins in the UK waters, one in Spay Bay in Scotland and one in Cardigan Bay. And these young bottlenose dolphins, sort of testosterone-fired-up hooligans, for kicks, we can't express it in any other way, headbutt or beakbutt harbour horses to death, you know, tossing them in the air, you know, and their beaks are really hard and really powerful. That's what had happened to this animal. For me, partly because the animal was like, it was my size, and because it's so obviously mammalian, all the organs that Rob was sort of dealing out of the carcass are mine, you know, the heart and the lungs, and then down to this skull, which he got a circular saw out and sort of put his visor down and told me to turn away because there was a chance of zoonotic infection that you can like catch sort of infection he sawed open the skull like a sort of hard-boiled egg and cracked it open and out came the brain like a kind of bloody blancmange in his hands and sort of rubbing it and it was actually incredibly touching to uh, against the information of mortality in a way of my own mortality but of the shared physiology that we you know that we share with these animals and what had been for me, you know, a possibly scary and <laughs> nauseous experience actually turned to be out to be incredibly enlightening and um, and actually really beautiful as well. Um, something very beautiful about, about the animal, its interior beauty exposed in that way, I, I found really moving, actually. I'm Jonathan Meads and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's move on and talk about whales for a little bit then there's a there's a couple of particularly vivid encounters with whales um a scene with a large female sperm whale in its calf off of the azores um, mm. but i want to talk about uh, sri lanka and blue whales basically mm. you go and see some blue whales blue whales of course being you know even more whenever you know we think of whales whales are these you know incredible remarkable beasts but the blue mm. whale the biggest creature that's ever lived on this planet somehow holds an even an even greater fascination for us. So tell us about encountering blue whales in the wild. The strange thing about the blue whale population off Sri Lanka, and they sort of very much sort of off the continental shelf at the very tip of Sri Lanka as it points down into the Indian Ocean, is they're kind of undiscovered because, partly because of the war with the Tamil Tigers, that area has been a sort of military no-go zone for decades. So it's only recently with the ending of that very disputatious war that the area's been opened up to tourism and, and suddenly the Sri Lankans realise these whales are here and you might say that's impossible. The world's biggest animal, you know, and you could almost I mean, they're only eight miles out, eight nautical miles out from the sea. You know, I mean, it's you know, it's not like they're a long way away. But there's a strange sort of, although a place like Sri Lanka is ostensibly a maritime place, you know, mm. eat a lot of fish. There's a degree of fear again about the sea there, cultural fear. My brother-in-law is Sri Lankan, so I know this quite well. And um, you know, there's no relationship to these animals historically. That's quite interesting because Sri Lanka was settled by the British and the Dutch and the Portuguese, all three of them, big whaling nations. Mm -hmm. It's strange that the, the, the whales of Sri Lanka sort of seem to escape notice. And it makes them all the more special that the world's biggest animal can be almost invisible. And the funny thing is, when you see a blue whale, and the first day I went out on a boat, I saw in the distance the blow of a blue whale. And I've seen many whales. I've seen many whales around the world, different species, but I've never seen the blur of a whale, which is 10 metres high. You know, that's 30 foot high, high as a house. And it's like this sort of airy blow, which is both there and not there. This kind of announcement of this ultimate leviathan. It sort of draws you on, and as you come in closer, um, we, I was on a tiny little fishing boat, a little 19-foot fiberglass battered bashed up boat with no GPS and, you know, just a, a Sri Lankan fisherman taking us out. You see the whale, but you can't see it because you can't compute. You can't, then nothing can be alive and be that big. It's mm -hmm. impossible. Something as big as a jet engine, a jet liner, you know, an airplane, it's just, it's impossible. So all you do is you kind of focus on bits to try and put it together in your head, to try and encompass the sort of fantastical nature of what you are witnessing. So you see the animal rise up, and you see the snout, and you see the blowholes 
And then you kind of fix on the colour because the colour really is a weird sort of petrally mottled blue, which under the sort of equatorial sun sort of shimmers and glimmers and changes colour. And then the animal keeps on coming and coming and coming and nothing's happening. All you're seeing is a greater length of almost serpentine body because they're not like that blue whale in the Natural History Museum. They're not great big mm. fat huge things. They're slender, hydrodynamic, exquisite creatures with this kind of ridiculously small dorsal fin which kind of appears at the very end of this spectacle as the animal's moving through the water. And you think, is that it? And then... In almost slow motion, this flute, these pair of flutes, the tails, rise up, and here they are as wide as a house, and water is dripping off them, and there are remora, parasitic fish, attached to the whale's flanks, and it just sinks, and it seems to take so long to do it. It's almost as though it's kind of just displaying its power in a sort of nonchalant way, and the way it just disappears. And the amazing thing about whales generally is the way they disappear, mm-hmm. the way they can just go. They're there one second and they're gone the next. Um, it's an amazing notion of absolute physical presence and absolute physical absence. And that's one of the things, that that's what draws you on about seeing whales, that tantalizing sense that you will never see. I've been as close as I could be to any creature, you know, uh, I could have touched, you know, I've been in the water whales. There's always some strange psychic distance between you and them. It, perhaps it's because when you're in the water, you don't touch anything really in a way. It's not a place of touching. You know, it's a place of seeing and, and hearing in a way. It's such an other world. It just never seems to me that you can ever breach that distance, you know. I've never touched a a live whale. I've never touched a live whale. I wouldn't, probably because it's just not etiquette. Mm -hmm. You don't, you know, meet someone and start prodding them (laughs) the first time you meet them. And partly because people think, you know, whales are great blubbery creatures. What would they think? If a seagull walks along a whale's back, which they often do when they're surfing, the whale will quiver. It's so sensitive. It's an incredibly sensitive animal. There are so many paradoxes about them. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I wonder how how we're going to follow that description. But um, there's a story that most people were familiar with about you know the utter destruction of of whales over the course of the the history of whaling it's a story you tell in the previous book leviathan as well mm. and as many times as that story is obviously worth repeating it's not often that we find something new in it in this book well you introduce us to another remarkable human being this is valentina Yakolevna Orlikova, who is basically, I can only really describe her as a glamorous Russian whaling captain. Yeah. 
So tell us a little bit about her. She's a wonderful person who's like this Soviet ver- Ahabess, you know, she's a feminine version of Ahab, who kind of looks like a sort of Marlena Dietrich, sort of Greta Garbo figure, only in a sort of naval uniform. And um, she apparently, when Anais Nin saw her photograph uh, reproduced in Vogue magazine of all places, uh, she fell excessively in love with her. Uh, Valentina was, was the only female captain on a, on a Soviet whaling ship. And the glamour and allure of, of her image, uh, which is reproduced in the book, a photograph is reproduced in the book, is counterpointed by the fact of what she was doing, which was reducing some of our most endangered species to extinction. And she was successful, right? <laughs> very successful, very successful. And of course, the trouble was with the Soviets, where they were all on a 10-year or 5-year plan when it comes mm. to whaling. So every year had to be that much more uh, whales. So... Whilst the uh, West were trying to scale back on whaling, because even at the beginning of the 20th century knew these animals were in very you know, dire straits, the Soviets, who were pretending to kill fewer whales, were killing more and more whales. And whales like the Pacific right whale, um, the Atlantic right whale, sperm whales, especially the right whales, were really brought to just you know, a few hundreds, even fewer maybe, because of Soviet whaling and because of them basically lying about what they were doing. It was um, the beauty of Valentina hides a very dark, dark secret, really. There's a figure, I'm not sure if you're going to be able to remember it, because it's quite big, but there is a figure of how many whales that she was sort of personally responsible for. I remember, it's probably in the thousands. You know, I mean, they were killing each other. You know, the British whaling fleet in the 1950s was killing 15,000 whales a year alone. That's just the British fleet, you know. More whales died in the year I was born in 1958 than died in the whole 150 years of Yankee whaling of the Moby Dick time, you know. Uh, Britain was completely complicit in all of that. Up into the 1960s, where uh, ships were coming back from the uh, South Atlantic, laden with whale blubber, to, to Southampton to be processed into stork margarine. Um, I don't know whether you ever ate stork margarine then, but you were eating whale. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, we the thing about that story is that it's such a quick shift between seeing a whale as a natural resource to seeing it as a natural barometer of ecological or environmental threat. That's something we're still dealing with in a way. You know, it's um, it's still working it out. You know, that's why Japan can still be whaling, killing thousands of whales and tens of thousands of dolphins a year. You know, under the pretense of scientific whaling, we haven't advanced from that point. You know, Norway is still doing it. Iceland, Denmark, dependencies like Norway and Greenland whaling. Um, you know, it's but the way we treat whales generally. I mean, I don't know if you've seen that movie Blackfish, really great new documentary that came out during the summer and about the sea world orcas, you know, and the way they're treated. It's, it's beyond beyond acceptability, you know. And even the EU, you know, with their Spain, France and the Netherlands all have a captive orca on their territory. It's, to my mind, how can you keep an animal so majestic and so much an apex predator, so intelligent as an orca on its own in a tank in which you can barely go, uh, in fact, probably cannot go vertical in the water column. And these animals which are supremely acrobatic, just, you know, it's, anyway, uh, it's the end of my political diatribe, but I, I, I do feel quite passionate. The Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Philip Hoare and we're talking about his book The Sea Inside. And Philip, we're going to move on to another case of 
extinction, apparent extinction, a case of a, you know, ecological disaster. On the other side of the world, we've reached finally the uh, Southern Oceans now, and we're going to stop off in Tasmania, first of all. And I want to talk about the thylacine, the um, Tasmanian tiger, and, and the story about what happened to it, and how that story might indeed have a happier ending. Yeah, well, although it might seem sort of far from the sea, uh, uh, the managed working the thylacine into the book just because I find it such fantastic story and it's such a strange survival and, and I mean and also well the thylacine which is the Tasmanian tiger and uh, for anyone who's listening who hasn't seen an image of it and do actually google it because you get some amazing footage of the thylacine the captive thylacine at London Zoo which is a strange strange thing um, the thylacine was discovered by Europe in uh, 1801, first described in a Sydney newspaper uh, around that time when it was seen in Tasmania. It had probably been widespread in, in the Australian interior, but it had been driven by that point to um, just to a residual population in Tasmania. And it was described with a sort of like many of the animals that were discovered in Australia, it's almost sort of incredulity. It had the kind of hind legs of a kangaroo, the stripes of a tiger, and the head of a dog. You know, it was a kind of portmanteau of an animal it's sort of been stitched together like a kind of barnum curiosity or freak and it's kind of almost because of that nature that its fate was kind of ordained in a way it was seen as predatorial wolf-like and suspicious it was blamed for some of the depredations of the uh, sheep population, which was, of course, becoming very important in the early years of the Australian settlement, especially in Tasmania, as is elsewhere in Australia. Entirely erroneously. Thylacines, we know, didn't hunt in packs. They hunted very singly. There weren't, there weren't really that many no, uh, accounts of them of actually having attacked sheep. But it's almost as they became a scapegoat. At the same time, for me as a kind of parallel to the way that the Aboriginal people of Tasmania were being treated, who again were first described and catalogued, as it were, at the same time as the Thylacine in the early 19th century. And again, another kind of fragile population. And just as the Thylacine were ruthlessly shot and hunted, so were the Tasmanian Aboriginal people. You started out with a population of tens of thousands at the beginning of the 19th century by the 1870s, they were down to five people, five supposedly pure blood, and I put that in inverted commas, Tasmanian Aboriginal mm -hmm. people. So the parallel between the human extinction and the mammalian extinction is quite powerful in this place, which is already a gothic place. It's a big penal colony. The um, Obviously, it's as Van Diemen's Land, it was the place where the worst offenders were sent. Very gothic place, and this animal seems to be a very gothic kind of creation. But what is very interesting about this animal is, is that although it was declared extinct only quite recently actually, but the last animal was supposed to have been the last captive animal died in the nineteen thirties. The last wild animal was seen in the nineteen forties. There have been persistent reports that they have survived. And Tasmania is still a lot of virgin Rainforest, temperate rainforest in, in Tasmania, a lot of it is still wild uh, wilderness. And that's where the imagining, imagination gets going and you start sort of, yes, well, why shouldn't these animals still be there? And you read some of the accounts. I mean, this is getting into cryptozoological territory, but I find that territory very interesting and I certainly don't dismiss it. Uh, many scientists would. But having examined many of those accounts and talked to people, about it. I'm starting to think, well, maybe it kind of is true. And I discussed this with someone who I can't name, but someone who was had a scientific interest in this and was a, a reputable person who, almost as a side, said, well, actually, they might not be extinct. They wouldn't say anything more. But I started to get the scent and I kind of see that maybe someone has found something. And the trouble is there's a political dimension to this in that the Tasmanian government have been logging in some of those virgin uh, rainforests. There's a big outcry about that. A lot of it's been stopped, but some of it's still going on. The conspiracy theorists say that they know very well the thylacine is still alive. But if they were to declare that fact, they couldn't continue to exploit these forests, you know, which are being chopped down. I mean, some of those 
wood is being shipped off to China made into toilet paper. It's heartbreaking to see. I mean, I saw it when I was in Australia and Tasmania. So that's the story. It's a very interesting one. Myself, I believe that it is possible that the animal still exists. If I was to call, you know, if anyone asked me to call it, I would actually go that way. But yeah, it's, it's a fascinating notion. And the other side of that as well, though, is it's, I've talked on the show a number of times with people about, you know, the idea of bringing back definitely extinct species. And this it's a good candidate for cloning. Absolutely, and they've tried. But of course, the thing is with, with the thymocene, because they're only recently dead, there's a lot of really good, a lot of good DNA material. I've seen it. Yeah, indeed. The uh, various collections around the country do have, in the UK and in Australia, uh, have got very good, I mean, they've got whole preserved thylacines, you know, and very good nicks. So I don't think there's any doubt that they will be able to do that eventually. Uh, I, I find <laughs> the romantic in me finds that slightly, I don't know, sad, really. I, just the idea that there is nothing we can't, you know, revive or create for our delectation and our entertainment. I mean, it's like, you know, genetically engineering a mammoth or, or, or cloning a mammoth. You know, it's, um, I don't know. I don't know what I, I think about that, really. <laughs> No, I, I, I constantly change my mind as to what yeah, I think about yeah. that idea as well. But there you go. We'll just finish off then talking about one other scene in the book, which is incredibly uplifting and good. I think it's a good point for us to end on. And we're still off of New Zealand at this point. Um, and basically, I'd like to tell us about swimming with the, uh, the super pod of dolphins. Yeah, well... New Zealand, which is where my sort of journey comes to a, an end, really. Uh, and New Zealand is, I, I don't know how many of your listeners have been there, but I, I, I was bored by all the people who told me how wonderful New Zealand is. And I got there and I thought, bloody hell, it's just <laughs> unbelievable. It is kind of, it's virginal again in a way, but it's beyond all those things in a way. Uh, because, you know, Kaikoura, which is where I had sort of my most experience, Extraordinary experience with dolphins, I suppose, and, and, and with whales as well. Is it just faces out to the wild Pacific? Uh, the waves are coming straight there from South America, as it were. The sense of utter illimitable power and and extraordinary diversity. I mean, there are 14 different species of albatross there. It's just greedy, I think, actually. And it's the first place I saw male, grown male sperm whales. And they are massive, you know, massive creatures. The one I saw was 17 meters long, which is a really big for her. And this is, you know, this is a predator, a, a, a toothed whale, not like a blue whale, which obviously is a bathing whale. And I saw this whale surface head upwards with his jaw open with a kingfish in its jaw. And a kingfish is about a meter long. Wow. And this whale had been hunting these kingfish by using its sonar to take the fish, but also stun the fish. And you saw these kind of circular patches of a disrupted water at the surface, a kind of ray gun with this whale, this massive head, I mean, huge head, using its powerful sonar to zap these creatures. And it was actually the, the next day that I was went out um, in the dark initially, out into the bay uh, uh, after uh, looking for dusky dolphin, which accumulate there in vast pods, huge pods. I mean, in a way, this is the way the world used to look like. You know, this is what the world was like before we messed it up, basically. You know, a place where there were teeming seas, teeming with life. And we came across this pod of dolphin, and I got in the water, and they swam me. You know, you don't choose to swim with a dolphin in that way. You know, certainly not out in the wild. A dolphin will come to you, and if it's interested, it'll hang around. If it's not, it certainly won't. And I was in the water, and, and these dolphins were like swimming around me, sort of. They do this really funny thing, kind of like swimming around you in circles, as if sort of daring you to keep up with them. And um, and it was all getting a bit exhausting, to be honest. And it was amazing to be in the water with, you know, these this handful of animals. And they're so beautiful. Dusky dolphins are like, they've almost been airbrushed with grey and silver and, and, and black. They're just exquisite animals. And then the captain, the skipper of the boat, I'm just about to get out, thinking, oh, this is, this is really great, but I better get out now. He turns up with his palms up outwards in the air to me, saying, stay in, and pointing behind me. And I look around, and there's no exaggeration, 200 dolphins 
chopping up this, the whole of the super pod, this big pod of dolphins. And they're coming straight at me. And I think, oh, my God. It's, uh, you automatically, you just instinctively think, they're going to go swim right into me. What the hell are they going to do? But, of course, they're sonar. They can detect something that, the thickness of a fingernail 50 yards away. You know, they are the ultimate masters of the ocean there. And as they came right to me, they just sort of whoosh straight past it, under my legs, under my arms, straight past my head. It was like being a, a, a charging herd of wildebeest, only incredibly sentient animals. You know, you tell, you can tell that the way they react to you, the way they play with you. I mean, that's an morph term again, but uh, so the fact that, you know, they're all Loads of them are having sex. You know, they've got erect penises, the males, and the, the female dolphins can have sex with uh, females in five minutes. You know, they're very... I mean, I would say, uh, you know, it's it's not like promiscuity, because, again, that's imbuing with a human trait. I mean, that doesn't operate in, in dolphin world, but it was quite a funny thing to be amongst. Um, that sense of utter life, of utter, you know, unbounded life, is just... It's ultimately quite, I mean, it's both incredibly exciting, but, you know, you just realize the world, all the world was like this once. So it's utter beauty, but there's a definite poignancy as well when you see something like that, because, you know, most of the people in the world will never see that. And um, that, that's kind of a sad thing, but an amazing thing that it does st- still exist. And that is a, a good point for us to end in. Yeah, most people won't see that, but they can all read about it in The Sea Inside by Philip Hall, which is out now from Forty State. So, Philip, thank you so much for talking to me today. My absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Field and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So I'm talking to the journalist Deborah Orr, and Deborah, we're going to talk about something. What is it we're going to talk about? Uh, we're going to talk about Kate Bush's first album, The Kick Inside. And yeah, this is, as you said, it's a debut album, came out in 1978. Did you hear it at that time or later? I first saw Kate Bush on Top of the Pops in 1978, performing on video her single, Wuthering Heights. I thought it and she were together just the most amazing female thing I'd ever seen. I'd always loved Wuthering Heights. I loved the Brontes. I was a very, very sort of romantic, bookish kid. And I just thought this was a sort of wonderful, wonderful rendition by this marvellous, beautiful girl. I went out and bought the album. It was the first album I ever bought. I thought it was wonderful too. I still do. I'm amazed that someone could write such an album so young still. And yeah, it was love at first sight. So she was 19 when that album came out, but actually some of the songs on it she'd written when she was as young as 30. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's it's a real testament to changing times. She'd written these songs, quite a few of these songs, very, very young. She'd approached EMI when she was 16 with basically almost a full album of songs and they'd said oh no you're too young you're too young you have to sort of go away for a while and you know in a couple of years when you're 18 years old then we can go which is you know just so different to now when you've got little kids crying on Britain's Got Talent and you know, absolutely no holds barred for kids of any age. So she was quite protected at that time. And of course, the other astounding thing was she made a lot of money from that album. She was just at that hiatus period when uh, musicians had caught up to the fact that um, their contracts were quite unfair to them and they were being sort of sold down the river by record companies. So that had kind of been straightened out. She made a lot of money from the album. Um, And of course, now, again... Thanks to the internet, musicians don't make money from albums. They have to go on the road, which famously Kate Bush never does. She doesn't like to tour. 
We mentioned Wuthering Heights. That was the single that you saw on Top of the Pops that went to number one. And I was going to describe her, I guess, as she's quite a, a standout figure in a world, in a pop world where there wasn't that many female singer-songwriters around at that time. Although we can probably think, you know, there's Patti Smith and Joni Mitchell. So there were some big names at that time. But I was really surprised to discover that even as late as 1978, Wuthering Heights was the first song to go to number one that was self-penned by a female singer-songwriter. Well, I think that um, it was actually quite a miserable time to be a girl. You would watch Top of the Pops, and there were basically no girls on it, apart from Pan's people, mm-hmm. none of the presenters were female. You had Jimmy Savile, and so on and so forth. So you'd have these girls dancing around you know, in the audience. You'd have these Pan's people, girls. All the musicians would be male. You would get a female singer sometimes. You'd very, very, very rarely get a female playing an instrument um, and the female singers who were around and did have careers were largely American there were some mm-hmm. Brits but you know they were few and far between at that time fewer in the 70s than there had been in the 60s when you had Marianne Faithful, Sandy Shaw, Dusty Springfield lots of singers lots of females so that sort of prog rock period was really college boysy and um, university laddie. There were not very many women around at all. So the ones that were around, you know, you had Fleetwood Mac, then Kate Bush came along. I mean, they were really sort of precious and important and quite inspiring at that time. And she was a really, really important figure for me. And funnily enough, my son is 16 year old now and music mad and we like completely different music. But he really gets Kate and sees how great she is. And he bought me for Christmas something I'd never seen before, which was a recording of her show at that time, at that time promoting that album, at the Hammersmith Odeon, you know, with her sort of acting and, you know, dancing with a trench coat, dancing with other dancers. And it was sweet because at the time, you know, it it looked so exciting and, and so experimental and new. And now, even though she's still fab and it's still great, it looks kind of hokey, you know, mm. almost sort of amateur dramatics-like. So again, you know, while she she is a sort of timeless talent, she was very, very much of her time as well. But also, as we've just said, incredibly young at, at that point as well, and she obviously went on to develop as an artist herself. Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, she, she was the real deal. I mean, she's an immensely talented musician and songwriter. And of course, you know, she is a very, very canny person. She's lived her life on her own terms. She realised very quickly that the massive media attention that she was getting was not good for her and was intrusive and was horrible. And, you know, she sort of retreated behind the walls of a mansion where she makes music and has her family and just has nothing to do with any of it, which is so tough and so uncompromising. Again, you have to take your hat off to her. It wasn't until years later that I learned that she'd been sponsored by David Gilmore, mm-hmm. you know, who had heard her songs and seen her perform and had sort of helped her get in touch with EMI. So she did have help at that time. But I mean, you know, fair play to him. I mean, he recognised the standout talent and he did what he could to help her. But it sort of slightly dilutes the magic of the idea of, you know, the girl all alone, the school girl writing her songs and uh, EMI picking her up. But also, I think, considering she had such a unusual amount of creative control a control over her career she stopped touring as you said and she had long periods of inaction where she's retired and and come back a decade later so beyond being inspirational for being an amazing artist she's really a, a one-off isn't she we can't really describe her as a necessarily a trailblazer for later female artists perhaps Well, oddly enough, the person who reminds me of her most in recent years, uh, even though they're very different characters in many, many ways, is Lily Allen. Again, Lily doesn't have the kind of choices that Kate does Mm. because she is performing at this period where you don't actually make money from record sales. You have to go on the road. So she doesn't really have that choice of reclosing herself, although she has a bit. I mean, she has chosen to step back and, you know, have a couple of kids and not right for a little while although you know that was quite a short period but I just sort of think that the way she she gathered together her material very young she achieved success quite young 
she again, you know, is proper, proper talent. A lot of people, when Kate Bush first came on the scene, even though it was obvious that she had this tremendous body of work, still were suspicious that she was a little bit of a one-trick pony and that it was a fluke and so on. And people were like that with Lily Allen as well. I remember when her first album first broke, I had a friend who'd been off working in America for six months and he sort of came back and said, yeah, nothing's changed in Britain except that Lily Allen's famous now. And it was very much that this was sort of some kind of lightning striking once feeling around her, even though it was absolutely clear that here was a really significant talent. The final question, Anna. Apart from being such a huge fan of her music from day one, basically, how else has she inspired you, perhaps? Has she been an inspiration in, in your career? Um... Journalism and music are very, very different. So um, I couldn't necessarily say she's she picks me up when I'm down. Mm. Her music picks me up when I'm down. Um, the way she lives her life reminds me that you know women have choices if they seize them um, and have control over their destiny. And she's just so beautiful even now, and I'm a sucker for that as well. So you know, beauty and loveliness always cheer me up. So yeah, I mean, she has certainly been positive influence and a comfort that's a uh, deborah talking about the kick inside by kate bush then so deborah thank you very much for taking the time to share it with me my pleasure thank you you've been listening to little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture this episode of little atoms was produced and presented by neil denny and was broadcast on resonance 104.4 fm you can find the Little Adams podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Adams. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleadams.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.